Amen. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning I want to talk to you about the falling away of the twelve. And uh, you might say, well, I thought Matthew 26 had the, the Peter's denial and it's all about Peter. Well, it's really not. It's, uh, we're going to find out that um, not only did Peter fall away, but the rest of the, uh, actually at this point there was 11 disciples, uh, one have already done his deed and Judas betrayed, but this morning we want to look at verses 30 to 35 of Matthew 26. Now there are times in our Christian lives I believe that we are given opportunities, you might say, to speak up for Christ. Um, and sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever walked from, away from a situation saying, man, what was I thinking? The Lord opened the door, and why wasn't I more bold? Why didn't I share the gospel? Why didn't I share my testimony? Why didn't I say something about Christ? Um, we all deal with that on occasions, and um, I walk away from situations a lot of times feeling like that, and I walk away thinking, hey, you call yourself a Christian, let alone a pastor of a church? Oh, man, look at the opportunity God gave you, and you, you couldn't even stand up for me there. Um, and then you read of missionaries who make these tremendous sacrifices to go to a foreign field. They leave their family. They leave everything they have as far as their worldly goods. They give it all up, and they go to a foreign field, and they serve in a foreign area in a maybe hot, humid, mosquito-ridden area and they're missing their children, they're missing their grandchildren, and they're all doing it for the cause of Christ. Um, Or you think of those missionaries who have the privilege, and I say privilege because it is a privilege, to die for the cause of Christ, um, upholding their faith. And sometimes I wonder if I could ever do that. Do you ever think about that? What if somebody came in here right now and held a sword to your head and said, we're going to lop your head off if you don't deny Christ, or we're going to put a bullet through your brain? If you don't deny Christ. I mean, most of us would say, oh, I'm sure I wouldn't deny Christ. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I wonder. And I'm talking about myself. Um, I'm not 100% sure about that. I just don't know. I'm praying that God would give me the grace and the strength to stand up under something like that. But as much as we would like to think ourselves as strong Christians... The fact of the matter is simply that we are weak. We're weak in our walk every single day. Um, We would like to think that we'd never get caught in a situation where we would deny Christ or or, um, deny his word or be ashamed of him or anything like that. But it's happened to all of us, if we're honest. But the truth of the matter is from time to time, we do just exactly that. We're caught in an environment, maybe it's a work environment of unrighteousness, we say nothing. We have an opportunity to speak up for Christ and we don't. There are times when we should be bold for Christ and we aren't. Um, and there are times, we're going to find out, when disciples even fall away. They go AWOL. They leave the cause of Christ for shame's sake. Um, we don't just stand out, step out and stand firm for Christ sometimes. And so the lesson that we're going to see here this morning in Matthew 26 is not only for the disciples, because that's mainly who Jesus is dealing with here, but I think it's also good for us to learn this lesson. Because of all the things you think this is the last hours of Jesus' life, remember it's Thursday, Friday morning, early probably at this point, and he's hours away from going to the cross. And he has this intimate time with his disciples, and you think, boy, what's he going to share with them? What's he going to share with them? And he begins to tell them how they're going to fall away. How they're going to be tested. How they're going to be tried. And here, I think it was done by the planning of the Lord because the disciples were the ones who were going to carry this message of the gospel to all the world after Christ is off the picture. And so he wanted to give them just a, just a little picture of how hard that's going to be. And that if they're going to be strong through this, it's not going to be by their own strength. It's going to be by the strength of the Lord in them. I mean, that's the way it is, isn't it? In life, the first step to being strong is to understanding your weaknesses, right? 
It's the first thing they tell those who deal with substance abuse. You have to admit that you've got a problem. If you're not willing to admit you have a problem, we can't help you. You have to admit you have a weakness. So the lesson of weakness here that Jesus is sharing is the first thing that he wanted them to understand. And the last thing, really, that he taught them at this point. In this lesson, he teaches them just that, how weak they are. Uh, Remember, Christ is getting ready to go to the cross. And today, he kind of breaks away from that and, and focuses a little bit on his disciples, getting them ready to carry on the message of the cross after he's gone. And they're going to learn a very important lesson about human weakness, about their own inability to live up to the standard that they say they do. And all of us as believers go through that on a daily basis. We have God's standard. We know what it says. We know what the Word says. And we go out in the world, and sooner or later we end up falling and stumbling over ourselves. We all face the fact that we might stand firm for Christ amidst Christians. It's easy to do that here on a Sunday morning. It's easy to do it on a Wednesday night Bible study. But when it comes down to being out there in the world and standing firm for Christ, a lot of us fall at times. And we need to learn that we do not have the strength in ourselves to handle that kind of situation. We can't just hunker down and say, okay, I just got to make myself stronger. It's not going to work. The only way it will work is if we recognize our weakness and depend on the Lord. If we think we can do it in our own strength, the Bible says we definitely will fall. Now, those disciples promise that they will never fall away. And let's just look at the text. And beginning in verse, I'm going to pick up in verse 30 and then down to 35. In Matthew 26, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the exact same thing. You see, they all affirmed the same thing that Peter said. Peter was, to be honest, just dumb enough to say it. Okay, as he usually is. He's one of those guys that says something, then thinks second. But they were all affirming it based on their own sense of strength, their own sense of commitment. They thought, hey, we've been with this guy three-some years now, and you know we're not going to leave now. They thought their love for Christ was greater than it was. They thought their spiritual strength was even greater than it was. They didn't consider their inability to handle the wiles of the devil, of Satan. They were leaning, as Proverbs 3 says, on their own understanding. And when it came right down to the very moment of having to take a stand when Christ was taken captive in that garden, look down at verse 56. Just to give you a little preview Matthew 26, 56. But all this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then what's it say? Then all the disciples left him and fled. See, when it came right down to the moment of trial, they all fled. They all left. They couldn't handle it. They had to get out of the kitchen. The fire was too hot. But they all were able to verbalize what Peter verbalized, they all affirmed. But you know what? Their affirmations were but empty words because they were endeavoring, they were trying to stand on their own strength. So Jesus here in this section is teaching them a strengthening lesson, a lesson about their own inability, about their own inadequacy, about the inadequacy of human strength. When you're in a spiritual warfare, don't rely on yourself. 
And you know what? Nobody is exempt from that kind of thinking. None of us here. Some may think they are, but they aren't. And it comes out of pride. I once heard a a pastor say to his congregation, you can trust I'll never fall into temptation. I thought, wow, what did he just say? (laughs) I'm above that. I've conquered sin. I live on the straight and narrow. I mean, what a foolish thing to say. What a prideful thing to say. Oswald Sanders said this, Pride is like an onion. You take off one skin and you come to another, and then still another. And all the while, it makes you cry. (laughs) That's what pride's like. And these disciples were filled with pride. Not just Peter, all of them. Think about it. They were with the man. They, They were with the guy who basically rid Palestine and Israel of any kind of disease. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He did all these miracles. His teaching was so profound that it even confounded the wisest of religious teachers of his day. They walked away just shaking their heads saying, man, we never heard a man like this teach before. And they had hordes of people following him everywhere they went. But the pride in their heart got the better of them. Read this story about a pastor who was at a pastor's meeting conference. And this older pastor stood up to testify as far as his faith is concerned. And the people at the conference were just taken back by this man's words. They were just blown away. Pastor stood up and he looked at the group and he said, I'm a lay pastor of a small, not growing church. I'm not ordained. I'm not seminary trained. Matter of fact, I was asked to leave both Bible colleges I attended. I'm divorced and remarried. On any given day, I'm capable of being a jerk (laughs) with my wife and family. I am terminally insecure, which causes me to compensate with bouts of arrogance. At times, people irritate me, and I hide from them. I'm impulsive, which causes me to say things I shouldn't and make promises that I cannot keep. I'm inconsistent. My walk with Christ is a stuttering, stumbling, bumbling attempt to follow him. At times, his presence is so real, I can't stop the tears. And then, without warning, I can't even find him. Some days, my faith is so strong, it's impenetrable. It's immovable. And some days, my faith is weak. It's pathetic. It's helpless. It's knocked about like a paper cup floating on the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. He went on, he says, I've been a Christian for 45 years. I'm familiar with the vocabulary of faith. And I'm often asked to give advice about matters of faith. But you know what? I'm still a mess. I'm light years away from being able to say with Paul, copy me. I'm 56 years old and still struggling. A flawed, clumsy, unstable follower of Jesus. A bona fide failure. My question to you is, which pastor would you want to follow? Which pastor would you want to trust? One who stands before you and says, I'll never fall into temptation. I'm perfect. Or somebody who's a little more transparent. See, you know what? The truth is we're all broken. We're all unfinished in this process of faith. Our own strength is never enough. And we have to humbly learn to lean on God. If we try to do this on our own, folks, we can't. And Simon, in particular, had to learn this critical lesson lesson as he proudly, even arrogantly, you might say, proclaimed his spiritual might and the strength of his soul. But it wasn't enough, for Simon was to be tested. Even in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And then he says this, 
Therefore, don't be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which indicates that there was a possibility that maybe Timothy was on occasion. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. See, to be honest, there's no place in the life of a believer for shame regarding Christ. There's just not. There's no place for defection. There's no place for desertion. There's no place for falling away. As a matter of fact, in Romans 9.33, Paul writes, Whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And Jesus said in Mark 8.38, It is a characteristic of an unbeliever that they are ashamed of me, and whoever is ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. See, it, it should be the unbelievers who are ashamed of Christ, not believers. And yet sometimes under pressure, in certain situations, we all are disloyal, we all defect, we all fall away, we're all unfaithful at times. And this lesson is a lesson about helping us through that process. Matthew's not primarily focusing here on the, on the disciples. It may seem that way when you first read this text. But really his focus is on Christ. Matthew's intent here is to preserve the dignity of Christ. I mean, stop and think about it. Here he's this leader of this huge religious movement. All these people are following him. He has his 12 little disciples that he's working with. One of them turns his back on him and turns him in. The other 11 end up falling away completely and don't even follow Christ. I don't know, but if you were me, I'd be looking at that situation going, what kind of leader is Jesus? This guy starts his religious movement and then everybody, they can't even stand up for him and then he dies on a cross? That's a failure. But I want to show you how Matthew takes this, what might be, what might seem an apparent failure to us. His leadership team falls apart. He ends up hanging on a cross and dying. And he turns it around and he makes the majesty of Christ just shine forth. Now remember, this is hours, literally hours before the death of Christ and the crucifixion. It's the conclusion of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's the climax of all redemptive history. This is what it's all about. This is the greatest moment. This is what everything has been working up to, the cross. I mean, if you stop and you look at the Gospels alone, you'll find out that only four chapters in all four Gospels deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Only four chapters. It's amazing. Thirteen are devoted to the last day of his life. (laughs) So this is a big moment in the life of Christ. Christ has ended the old Jewish dispensation with the, the final dispensation with the final Passover. We talked about that. And he instituted the new covenant of his blood and his cup with his disciples in the Last Supper. And now he's going to teach his disciples this very incredible lesson about how they need to be strong, not in their own strength, but in Christ's strength. And they need to deal with this because they're going to be the ongoing extension of his kingdom and his covenant here on earth. So, Look at verse 30. We come to our text, and it says, When they had sung a hymn, or literally the Greek says, When they have hymned, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Remember when we were talking about the Passover feast that they just celebrated. They had four cups of watered-down wine they would drink amongst the, the, the main meal of the lamb and the bitter herbs and the sauce and all that stuff, the unleavened bread. We talked about all that, the symbolism of all that. Well, basically, they would take a fourth cup, a final cup, and after that, they would sing a, what they would call the great halal, which was Psalm 136. And if you look up Psalm 136, every line ends the same. It says, for his mercy endures forever. Throughout that psalm, every line ends the same. His mercy endures forever. So they would sing this hymn, and then it says they went out. And you say, okay. So now they're at the mount of olives well not necessarily because matthew leaves a lot out (laughs) matter of fact he leaves about four chapters out that we find over in john because somewhere here between the the singing of that hymn 
He instituted the supper. Before they left somewhere, you have to jump over to the Gospel of John, and you have to insert John 14 through 17. So turn over there, and I just want to just highlight this for you, because it's important that we put everything in context. Here he teaches them. He takes time somewhere after he instituted his supper and before they left, and he teaches them what we find in John 14, 15, 16, and then he's, his prayer is found in verse in chapter 17, a prayer to the Father for his disciples. And if you read through that, and you read through it on your own, we're not going to do it this morning, <clears throat> but if you read through that, you're going to find that he teaches them all about positive things. He teaches them about all the, the peace that they'll enjoy, the joy, the, the contentment they can have, the comfort that you find in Christ. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about the Word of God. He talks about hope for the future. And then he prays for him in chapter 17. He even promises him persecution in that text. But he says, you know what? When you endure it, you're going to be delivered out of it. So don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. He gives them all the information they need right before the cross. And then he prays for them in verse 17. And you say, well, how do you know that's where it fits? Well, look at verse 1 of John 18. John 18, verse 1. Remember, these are parallel passages, okay? And they're not all going to be identical. Different writers have different styles or whatever, but it says in John 18, 1, and when Jesus had spoken these words, he went, what? Out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and then we can pick it back up in Matthew. So all of that is covered. John records it. Matthew does not. So they have this meal, and somewhere before they leave to go out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives them this great teaching on oneness and unity and all this stuff, power and and everything. And then they sing the hymn, and then they leave. Now, if you think about when they're leaving, it's, it's almost midnight, if not midnight. They're leaving They're going out in the cool of the night, but it's not quiet. Because remember, it's what? The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's the Passover. I mean, that place is just alive with people. It's crowded. The streets are crowded. The Galileans and the Pharisees eat their Passover Thursday night, so some of them are probably still finishing it up. Their lights are on. The Judeans and the Sadducees are getting ready for the next day when they eat their Passover feast. They're getting ready for the, the, uh, the, the sacrifice and all that, trying to find the animals. People are visiting the city. They're trying to find places to, to uh, celebrate the Passover. And so people are just all over the place. And that's the way it is a lot of times in the Middle East. You go out in the middle of the night, the streets are just full of people. It's like, don't these people ever sleep? You know, my wife was out till 2, 3 in the morning one night over in, I think it was Istanbul, Turkey, with a friend. I mean, I was in bed. But I, they were out there, and oh yeah, there's lots to do at night. People all over the place. Restaurants are open. It's just the way they, they live over there. It's alive. And they've crossed, they go out and they cross this Kidron Valley, and there's this little brook that runs and it's, it's full because of probably a lot of the, the water runoff, the winter rains. But it's also red because of all the blood that's sacrificed from the animals. And the, the little brook runs out of the back of the temple. And it runs down in the Kidron, the, uh, the, the valley there, into this little brook. And so it's, it's just, you know, you see all this stuff going on. There's 11 of them now. They're heading up with Jesus, 11 of them. They're heading up into the dark to ascend the Mount of Olives. And they're headed for a very familiar place because they've, they've gone there many times, and it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And that place means olive press. That's what that, those words mean. It means the Mount of Olives. Uh, you know, there's probably, oh, there is many olive trees over there, and they probably had an olive press there. Who knows? But that's where they were headed. Because people in the cities didn't have any gardens because they didn't have a place for them, so they would have their gardens outside the city, up on the hillsides. And apparently it was quite a climb because it says that they stopped for a period of time. And it's just him and his disciples. And it says that they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they come to a certain point, and he launches this 
I don't know how else to say, exhortation, confrontation, about their own weakness. He taught them all this stuff about power and unity and all this stuff up in the thing. Now they're out in the valley. They're up on the, the uh, working their way up to the Mount of Olives. They stop probably to, to catch their breath or whatever. It's all been positive for them up to this point. But now as he comes to this moment on the side of the hill, it's time for a negative message. It's time for another warning. It's time for an exhortation for them. And so in verse 31, we see this, this contrast to begin. And we see several contrasts here throughout this text. And the first one being between the omniscience, the knowledge of Christ, and the ignorance of the disciples. I mean, the disciples, to be honest, were very ignorant people. <laughs> they were very ignorant men. We find Peter saying, Though all men, in verse 33, will be offended because of you, I will never be offended. How ignorant is that? I mean, it's only a matter of a few hours before he would be offended. Verse 35, he says, Though I should die with you, yet I will not deny you. I mean, he didn't know that. How, how would he know that? Why would he say such an ignorant thing? And then all the disciples, don't just put it on Peter, all the disciples said the same thing in verse 35. They were all ignorant. They were ignorant of their own weaknesses. They were ignorant of the strength of Satan. They were ignorant of the test that was going to await them and the great power that they were going to need to face that test. I mean, they were ignorant even of the Old Testament. In verse 31, Jesus says, You will all fall fall away because of me this night, for it is written, right? And he begins to quote back out of Zechariah. I mean, they were saying ignorant things, and Christ had to pull them aside and say, Hey, wait, I need to talk to you about this stupid self-trust you have. (laughs) Then in verse 34, he says to Peter, Verily I say to you, this night before the, the rooster crows, you'll deny me on three occasions. So what is Christ doing here? You see the ignorance of the disciples on one hand, but on the other hand, you see the omniscience of Christ. See, none of this caught him off guard. It's not like Jesus got, you know, got out there and said, oh, no, you guys don't know about this. Oh, I need... He knew what was in their hearts. He knew everything was going on. He knew what would happen that night. And he knew it would happen because of him. But he also knew he would be raised from the dead. He knew he would meet them in Galilee. He says all that. He knew that they would be offended to the point where that very night, before the cock crowed, Peter himself, the leader, would deny Jesus Christ. He knew they would never pass that trial that night on their own strength. He knew everything. He knew what Judas was doing exactly when Judas was doing it. He knew what the rulers of the Jews were doing when they were doing it. He could already see in his mind's eye the movement of soldiers, the Roman soldiers, along with the Jewish leaders coming with clubs and swords and torches into the garden to take him captive. He could feel on his cheek even the kiss of Judas as he betrayed him. He could feel all that. It's all happening all at once in the mind of Christ because he knows everything. And he knew about this prophecy back in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. See, see how Matthew turns this around, this thing that seems like be unraveling, but he turns it around and he says, look at the omniscience of Christ. Look at the majesty that we have in Christ. None of this caught him off guard. Well, in Zechariah 13, 7, the verse he quotes there in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. For it is written. What's that mean? That means this is God's plan. This is how it's going to go down. This is what's going to happen. Nothing's going to change it. This is God's divine plan. And then he quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. 
See, Jesus not only knew what Judas was doing, what the religious leaders were doing, what the disciples were thinking. He knew what Satan was planning. He knew how the whole trial was going to come out. He not only knew everything about the present and the future, but he also understood the past. He also understood the plan of God. He also understood what was foretold about this very evening. And when you look at that passage back in Zechariah chapter 13, it's kind of difficult. Because you read chapter 13 and it seems like Zechariah is talking about these false prophets whom are going to fall under the judgment of God. God is going to judge these false prophets. And then all of a sudden in verse 7 he says, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered about. And you might say, well, he must be talking about a false prophet there. That's the context. Scatter all the followers of the false prophets. That's what makes sense. But that's not what he's saying. We might think that the excerpt, except for what Christ says here in Matthew, who says, the smiting is me and the flock is you. <laughs> That's what he says. And so the smitten shepherd of Zechariah 13.7 has to be the Messiah, and the scattered flock has to be his people. That's how he makes sense out of that passage back there. It says, Awake, O sword. And this is God, Jehovah God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now that tells you right away that it's not a false prophet against my shepherd. God is not slaying a false prophet whom he calls my shepherd, God's personal representative. God says, My sword will slay my shepherd in that text. And after that, he has the most interesting phrase. He says, and against the man. And he uses the Hebrew word here that is not the normal word. This word means mighty man. This this word means man of strength. So the shepherd to be slain is called the shepherd of God, my shepherd, the mighty shepherd, the mighty man. And then he says, who is my fellow Literally, the mighty man of my union. I mean, who is equal to God? It's Christ. That's who he's talking about. So Zechariah is, is turning a corner from the, the false, saying, yeah, God will wound you false shepherds, and God will tear down your uh, houses of idol, but God will also wound the true shepherd, and his sheep will be scattered as well. And at the end of the verse, it says, and I'll turn my hand on these little ones. There will be a remnant. There's always a remnant. I mean, think about it. After this happened with Christ, Israel, as we know it, basically fell apart. 70 AD, city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, everything else. It was just chaos everywhere. The disciples were being scattered. And that was the first phase of all this chaos that followed what they did to Christ. Christ knew all that. His omniscience was very clear. He knew exactly what was going to happen when it was going to happen. Secondly, we see the contrast not only of Christ's omniscience and the disciples' ignorance, but also the courage of Jesus and the cowardice of the disciples. Look at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus said, You will all fall away. You will all be offended. That word is, it means to be trapped. You're all going to be trapped. You're all going to get caught in a trap. And it's going to be more than you can handle. That's what he was telling them. The trap will catch you. You're going to get hit with a trial that is, that is too much for you to bear. And you're all going to fall into it. Not just Peter, all of you. And you say, well, what was this trap? What do you mean a trap? Proverbs 29.25 says this, The fear of man brings a what? A trap. A snare. What was their trap? It was fear. 
They were afraid. Think about it. They've been with Christ all this time, and it's been a glorious ride so far. And all of a sudden, he's starting to talk about his own death and being crucified and turn himself over to the religious leaders. You don't think they were afraid? They were terrified. They were afraid of what the Romans might do to them or what the Jews might do to them. Look back at verse 55 of the same chapter in Matthew 26, if you doubt me. It says, at the hour, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me? But all this had taken place that the scriptures might be forward, and all them fled, it says. Why did they flee? Because they were afraid. I mean, if somebody comes running at me with clubs and swords, I'm going to run too, right? They were afraid. They're all going to be offended. And they're going to be offended because of him. He's telling them, you're going to leave me. You're going to defect. You're going to forsake me. You're going to go AWOL in the middle of the battle. And that's exactly what happened. When the pressure was on, they were all gone. They were afraid of what was going to happen. They were ashamed to be identified with Christ. Don't think they don't love Christ. They do. Don't think they don't want to be true to Christ. They do. But you know what? Sometimes, and if you've ever had this happen, fear can take over our lives. Just like that. And pretty soon we're thinking of things that are possibly never going to happen, but in our mind they're happening and it's very real. See, they don't have the faith to believe the Lord can deliver them out of this. They just don't have it. They don't trust him that much. They see this whole thing turning upside down real quick, and they're going, man, this is, we're going to be in trouble. Can't get us out of here, Jesus, we're gone. See you later. They're looking at Christ as a victim. They're looking at Christ as someone who's failed. And if they can do this to Jesus, what are they going to do to us when they get a hold of us? So you see the cowardice here of the disciples, but you also see Jesus in his perfect courage, just continually moving to the cross, committing himself to the Father, unwavering in his trust. Whatever your will to do, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever, Father, you want me to do, I will do it. I'm putting my life in your hands, Father. That's what he's doing. See, and they can't do that. They're cowards. He goes to a cross to bear sin. Do you understand that Christ has never even touched sin? He's perfect. Sin has never touched him. He's never been tainted by one single sin. And yet he's going to go to a place and bear the sins of all the world, of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. He's going to be abused. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be beat up. All of those horrible things are going to be happening to the Son of God. And he just continues to move toward the cross. Talk about courage. While they run out in fear away from him, he stands true to the task. Facing death, facing sin, facing Satan for their sake. Thirdly, you see the contrast between the power of, the, of Jesus and the weakness of the disciples. You know why they were afraid? Because they were weak. I mean, if you're, if you're in a weak position, yeah, you're going to be fearful. If, if you're in a strong position, there's no, no need to be fearful. They couldn't handle death. They couldn't think that way. That's what scared them. In verse 32, he says, After I am raised up, I go before you into Galilee. See, the Lord faced death with this tremendous courage. Because he knew what? He knew that he had power over death. That wasn't going to hold him. The grave wasn't going to hold him. The disciples couldn't understand that. They didn't get that. They missed that part. And they were 
looking at themselves and they were saying, we can't handle death. They're going to kill us. Is this worth it? Romans 6, 4 says, Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. Which means that when Jesus went into the grave, here he says, I will be raised up. He was clearly stating that. And he said it over and over and over again. You go like Matthew 16, 17, Matthew 20. I must go be crucified and three days later I'll rise from the dead. He believed what the Father said. He committed himself to the, the power of his fa- Father, the power over death. It says in Hebrews that he came to conquer death, which has held men in bondage all their life long. He came to destroy him who had the power of death, Satan himself. Christ's power was so great that he faced the cross because he knew there was power to conquer death. He took on death as an enemy to be defeated. The poor disciples, man, they paled in comparison. They faced death and they ran said, no way, we're not dealing with this. I think Christ believed what Abraham believed in Hebrews eleven, seventeen and 19, where he offered up Isaac. You remember that in the Old Testament? It speaks of it in Hebrews. I mean, why would someone take their only son, the son of promise, and offer him up to God as a sacrifice? That doesn't make much sense. It was because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. That's the only option you have. And Abraham believed that with all his heart, so he was willing to slay his own son. God, the God of promise, promised that Christ would not be held down by death. So he was willing to go to the grave because he knew God would be the God of promise. And if God said he would be raised, then Christ would be raised. If God said he was going to be king of kings, he was going to be king of kings. That's exactly what happened. And you say, well, shouldn't the disciples have known that? Well, they should have. He told it to them over and over and over again. He just saw them raise Lazarus from the dead. You think that somehow they put it together. Jesus said to them, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, he will live. And whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? They should have known that. But in the weakness of their faith, as we all go through, sometimes they were cowards. And the fear took over. You notice they were weak, but he was strong. Look at what he says there. I will lead you into Galilee. I mean, the surety of his words. You know what? I'm coming back personally, and I'm going to be your shepherd to lead you once again. And then in chapters, Matthew 28, in verses 28... Uh, verse, or chapter 28, verse 9, what happens? He meets them again. He gathers them together. And what happens? They go into Galilee. See, when Jesus says something, he means it. You know, he's not one of these people that will promise something, but it's, you know, it's a show game. That's not how Jesus works. I mean, we can sit here all day long and kind of pretend that we're smart, that we don't have any ignorance, that we're strong as believers. I would never fall into this situation. But you know what? That's ignorant to even say that. We have to believe that we don't have the strength to face anything that comes down the pike, that we need Christ, we need the power of the Spirit, we need God every day in our lives, every moment, every second. I mean, when we're put in a trial, a lot of times we find out, what? That we're weak. That we can't handle this on our own. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Until you learn the lesson of your own weakness, you can't learn the lesson of strength. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, my strength is what? Made perfect in what? Weakness. We're to depend wholeheartedly on Christ every day. We have to teach ourselves not to trust in ourselves. And that's an ongoing battle. Well, there's also a marvelous contrast here between Jesus' humility and the disciples' pride. 
Jesus' humility and the disciples' pride. I mean, the pride of the disciples comes through the mouth of Peter because he's kind of the spokesman. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, I will never be offended. I mean, can't you just see him with the other guy standing there and he's saying this? He's probably looking at the other, yeah, you guys are probably going to go. That's fine. You fall away. I'm going to be the truest of the I'm going to stay here. Peter was prideful, self-confident. When it came right down to it, he was a coward. He was weak. He was ignorant, but he didn't understand it. He didn't know it. John MacArthur said this in one of his writings. He said, my own feeling is Peter is the closest to Judas of all the disciples. Except for the fact that he believed, he's very little different. Very self-centered, very egotistical, very consumptive, very proud. And he says, the guy doesn't learn well either. (laughs) Though all men shall be offended, everybody's going to be trapped, but I'm not going to be trapped. I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to stand with you, Jesus. Do you understand in just a matter of a few minutes, a few hours here from the time this lesson was being taught back in the upper room? You may not know this. Look at John 13. Look at John 13. This is back when they were up in the upper room. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterwards. This is when they're in the upper room. This time of teaching that Jesus is having after the meal. Verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I want to come now. Like a little kid. And then he says this, I will lay down my life for you. Whoa. Oh, really? Look at what Jesus says in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. See, this is not the same as it is in Matthew. This is a separate time. This is before. Then you jump over to the book of Matthew And you find Jesus saying the same thing to Peter over and over and over again. He already said this to him once. About the rooster crowing, he's going to deny him. A lot of people think that the time in Matthew was the first time it wasn't. It was back in in the Gospel of John when they were having the meal together after the meal. When he was teaching them, he had to set them in order. Hey, you know what, before this night's over, you're going to deny me. Now they're out of the room a little while longer up on the slope. And Peter says again, all men will be offended, but I will never be offended. But you know what? Jesus is consistent. He gives him the same answer. Look at what he says. Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I mean, this is twice in one night. In a couple hours, this guy needs to be reminded of his pride, of his self-confidence. And he's just not getting it. Look over at the Gospel of Luke quickly because it gives us a different picture of this scenario. Remember, all these writers are writing from their own perspective, their own viewpoint, so you're going to have different things that different uh, Gospel writers say. But this is kind of interesting in verse 31 because Jesus gives a little more of what, what he told him there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I mean, sifting was to put the wheat in this contraption and you shake it. And you shake it hard till all the stuff gets out and you just have the the substance that you want left. And he says, Satan wants you. And here, it's not just... He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You is plural. 
So who's he talking to? He's talking to Simon, and he's also talking to the other disciples. He's saying Satan's going to get all you guys. He's going to sift all you guys. I mean, you think that, you know, just the, the, the subject here of, of Satan, that somehow in Peter's mind he'd say, you know, that sounds familiar. Where did I hear that before? Oh, yeah, back in Matthew 16. I'm not going to let you die, Lord. You're not going to die. It's not going to happen. Remember what, Jesus, or what Jesus had to say to Peter? Get thee behind me who? Satan. <laughs> See what I mean? He was a slow learner. He just didn't get it. So he said here he's going to shake them violently. He's going to test them. But Jesus says there, I pray that your faith will not fail. And when you're converted... Strengthen the brethren. See, Jesus is saying, I'm going to pray for you that, yeah, you're going to fall, but it's not going to be a total collapse. It's not going to be game over. You're going to have a disaster, and it's not going to look very pretty. But you know what? Because I prayed for you, you're going to be able to be restored, and you're going to be recovered as a result of this. And then you're going to move on, and you're going to be able to strengthen others. Why would Jesus do that? Because he wants Peter and the rest of the disciples to go out and to give the message of the gospel and also the message of, hey, you know what? Don't even trust in yourselves. We tried it. It didn't work. Put your trust in the Lord. You're going to learn a lesson that you can preach to others. And in Luke, he says, I am ready to go with you both into prison and to death. I mean, he's just so over the top. Arrogant. So you jump back to Matthew 16 and you wonder this message that Jesus is sharing. I mean, they're all on shaky ground here, but Peter's kind of pointed out as the fool. His pride is over the top. And he manifests his pride basically in three ways quickly. He forgot what Jesus already told him when we looked at that. And then he contradicts the Lord. I mean, this isn't the first time he did it. The Lord would say something, oh, no, no, it's not going to happen that way, Lord. It's like, who are you? Sometimes we get to thinking of ourselves a little bit too highly, and we think, oh, no, it's my plan. It's, it's my life. It's, it's my life, best life now, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not your best life now. Your life is to be called a sacrifice to Christ. And it's not about you, it's about him. Secondly, it says there, he felt that he was stronger than the other disciples. He claimed to be better than everybody else. They'll all be offended. I won't be. And then thirdly, he failed to understand his own weakness as well as the power of the enemy. What did he do? He trusted in his own strength. And you know what? As Christians, that's one, those three things. Don't ever miss that lesson. Don't forget what Jesus has already told you to do. That's why we're to be students of the word. Don't feel that you're stronger than everybody else. How, why? Because that, then you end up being an arrogant, prideful jerk, basically, that calls yourself a Christian. And gives cause for people to walk around and ask, see, that's what Christians are like. That's why I don't want to be one of those. And don't ever fail to understand your own weakness. The Bible says you think you're going to stand. Well, that's when you're going to fall. The man was so very proud, and as well as the other disciples. And the humility of Jesus comes through so beautifully in verse 34. He says, this night before the, the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And you know what? Christ is going to be left alone. He's going to be forsaken. He's going to be deserted. He's going to be all by himself. All because of the stupid pride of men and the their, their, their willingness to trust in themselves. But you know what? He's still going to go to the cross. He's still going to die. He's still going to shed his blood for these cowards, these weak, proud disciples who were going to desert him. Why? Because he's humble. He's humble to the Father's cause, to the Father's plan. I mean, stop and think about it. These men are being ashamed of the living God 
who is not ashamed of them. I mean, if anybody should be ashamed here, ashamed it should be, God should be ashamed. He should be ashamed to be associated with such people like this, or even such people like us, with sinners. But you know what? He's not. But when we as sinners are ashamed to be associated with God, who died in our place, boy, we need to stop and think about that one. What's he mean here before the cock crows, before the rooster crows? We talked about this before a little bit. The Jews divided the night into four parts. Six to nine, midnight. Uh, six to nine, nine to midnight. And then 12 to three. And three to six. That's how it worked out. That, that phrase there, when the cock crows, was basically the name given for the period from midnight to three in the morning. Because somewhere during that time, that's when the rooster would crow. So they literally called that time of the evening cock crowed. That's literally what they called it. And so here it's almost midnight, and the Lord says here in a few hours, you're all going to be deserting me. He knew every detail. He knew exactly what would happen. And if you look back at verse 74 here quickly as we close... We'll get to this in a couple weeks, but it says, Then he began to invoke a curse on him and to swear. This is Peter. I mean, you say, well, does he just leave and he walk away? No. Someone accuses him of being with Christ, and it says that he actually begins to swear. He actually begins to curse. Is he cursing Christ? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. You don't know. But you stop and you think about it. Wow. But then our hearts are reminded of verse 32 because it doesn't end that way. Because in verse 32, Jesus tells us how it's going to end. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And you know what? Even though they were prideful, even though they were weak, even though they were obstinate at times, if you look over to Acts chapter 5, you can see how this last thing, Jesus' restoration, even in spite of their desertion, how it ends. In Acts chapter 5, the same group of guys are there. The same disciples that just left Jesus. In Acts 5, verse 40, the Jewish council in Jerusalem called the apostles the disciples. Same 11 guys. He called them in. Called the disciples. They beat them. And then they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let him go. And you say, is this the same group of guys? Yep. In verse 41, look at what happened. And they departed from the presence of the council. It says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased, what? Not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. I think they learned their lesson. I think they took to to heart the words of Christ as he taught them in that intimate time. Don't ever trust in your own strength. Don't ever look to yourself. You know, be humble. Come before Christ. Understand what it means to trust in his power and not your own. We're going to close with a hymn. The words of how firm a foundation. Say this, fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you for this picture of the falling away of the twelve disciples. And Lord, I pray that in our own heart we would never grow so arrogant and so ignorant to think that we would never fall, that we would never deny you. Lord, it's only by your power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would stand for you given the opportunity. Help us to never put our trust in ourselves. Help us to forsake all of that and replace it. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with courage not to forsake you. Help us live lives that are honoring to you. 
Help us never to be ashamed of you, but to stand fast, to stand firm in our convictions as Christians in this lost and dying world that needs so much love, so much grace, so much forgiveness. I pray that we would be able to offer to them the message of forgiveness. Father, we ask this morning, if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would understand that Christ means what he says. And he says what he means. He doesn't mix the message up. He's very clear. He says very clearly that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that everyone here this morning has cried out to you for the forgiveness of their sins and put their faith and trust in none other than Jesus Christ. If that's not the case, I pray that you would work in their hearts this morning, that you would show them the truth of which we speak, that you would draw them by your power to your Son who died for them and is willing to carry the burden of their sin and forgive it and set them free for the first time to live a life that's honoring of you. Father, we thank you and we praise this. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.